and welcome to Lily High on Life, new editions for 2020. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have in the studio with us today, Warren Wills. Lily, great to be here. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm actually very high on life. I wish I could say I was high on sleep, but uh, high on <laughs> life is a good place to be. Well, I have to tell the audience that you are one of the most prolific um, composers, musicians, uh, musical geniuses uh, that I've come across. In fact, the word prolific needs to have a new definition with your name next to it, because not only um, are you writing, producing different shows, but you're doing it globally. Tell us, just touch on each of the different countries that you are right now today in 2020 producing and creating um, events for? Well, I'm certainly happy to do that. I'm glad you used the word prolific, not OCD, because it's a very fine line between <laughs> the two. I think my daughter and both myself, we're list-obsessed. And once we've made the list, we've got to go and do them. That's how it works. But um, 2020 is very exciting. And again, I've got to say quite honestly that I haven't sat down when I was younger and described or prescribed for myself a year where I must be doing work in the Middle East and in London, in America, and in Kazakhstan and Eurasia. It's amazing how these things unfold. But um, where we are at the moment, there's the number of territories that I'm involved with for 2020. The first one, which is definitely sort of my main HQ and the hub of all activity, is London. And for me in London, it's been my home for 35 years. I've got uh, three kids who have grown up there. I've got two grandkids there. But by its very nature, given its culture and its tradition, it... Um, it really is the the mecca, which we'll come on to, but in so many ways uh, of so much creativity. And I actually think more so than New York because traditionally and culturally so much of what goes right back pre-Shakespeare even uh, emerged out of the UK. London, and you've just completed a very successful sold-out show on the West End in London. I was thrilled to be working on a production called Reputation. It was produced and written by Alec Glass, but... Uh, I came in to do a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the composition, all the musical arrangements, and I directed and MD'd the show. We did have another Australian in it, a guy called Jeremy Seacombe, who was fabulous in it. The rest of the cast was UK. We did it at a Lloyd Webber theatre called The Other Palace, which is a spitting distance from Buckingham Palace in Victoria. That's Victoria, UK. <laughs> and it was fabulous. The reviews were great. The audience went out absolutely joyful. And the great thing about the show, it was set in the 1930s, and as a result, the music was very much what I call Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers kind of musical. It was a feel-good show. There was no sex. There was no violence. There was no swearing. There was no murder. You don't get that. And it days. was sold out. It was sold out. It was great fun. And then at the same time that you were doing that, you also went on this amazing tour of the Middle East as a Jewish boy from Melbourne. Please talk about that. I am thrilled to say that about 10 years ago I got a phone call from Sensible Studios which is in um, Caledonian Roads near King's Cross in London but it's an absolute state of the art studio and everyone from Michael Jackson, Sting, Elton John Spice Girls, Kooks, everyone records there and I got a call from them because my big thing is styles that's my big shtick in music I don't care what the music is, I celebrate styles so if you said to me Warren can you play the theme from Casablanca in a Bavarian flamenco bluegrass and reggae style, I'd say, I'm your man, Lily. And that's what I do. So I got this call one night to go into Sensible Studios. And I thought, my God, what have I walked into? I walked into some kind of Al-Qaeda convention. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> 
Anyway, long and short of it is they said, Mr. Wills, can you listen to this track and put some piano on it? I listened to the track. It certainly sounded like a very traditional Arabic piece of music. And it certainly sounded like a very complete one. So I thought, what the hell do they want me to do? So I did my thing and I played totally incongruous, incompatible Mike Warren Wills jazz all <laughs> over the top of it. In my opinion, completely ruining the track. Anyway, no one threw knives at me. They did pay me. And two months later, I get a phone call. Mr. Will's El Tufa, which means the apple, is number one all over the Middle East. Released on Virgin. It's number one everywhere. We need you immediately to come to Beirut, uh, which at the time was where MTV and a lot of the big broadcasters moved from Cairo over to Beirut. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting. So I rock up to Beirut. And I actually went there twice in the same week to do two different floors of the main broadcasting thing for MTV. One was MTV Popular, one was MTV Classical. Then I went to Cairo, and we did the SOS Festival, which was like the Save Our Soul Festival. And then I was invited to go wait for it to Riyadh, which is quite interesting because under Sharia law in Saudi Arabia, music is illegal. So being (laughs) asked as the token white male Western Jew to rock Riyadh was quite something. We had to perform at the French embassy, so we weren't officially on Saudi soil. We did three shows there and were promptly arrested and deported because we're about to go off to Jeddah. And they said, no, there's no embassies in Jeddah, which is on the west side of the country. So we were all... Uh, flown off to Bahrain, which is preferable than being beheaded, which it goes on publicly <laughs> on a Friday afternoon in the main square. So I was very happy to leave the place with my head still intact and on my shoulders. We are too. <laughs> Absolutely. But then, after a little hiatus, I got a phone call when I was in London and, and, and reputation, the show was on the West End. Ilam al Madfai is his name, is celebrating 55 years. It's a big anniversary in the business. Can you come and do a golf tour with us? Well, I said, the show doesn't actually finish until the end of November. They said, that's perfect. We can't see if you can join us in December. So they flew me out to Dubai and Sharjah, and we did the Al-Majaz Amphitheater, which is an absolute state-of-the-art 2,500-seat theater. 20 musicians in the band. Maybe two of them spoke English. I certainly don't speak Arabic. They gave me a song sheet in Arabic, a uh, song list. I said, that's no good to me. I don't read Arabic. They gave it in English. That was no good to me because I still don't know any of the songs that they're doing, but I have a very good ear. So, uh, And they put the grand piano down the front of the stage, and it was a riot. It was absolutely fabulous and really humbling. And then I went back about a week later to Amman uh, at the invitation of the Crown Prince of Jordan, and the gig was set up by King Abdullah, and it was great. We uh, Again, it was about 20 of us, and all the musicians except for myself came from Egypt, Lebanon, Algeria, wherever around the Middle East, and they got a nice grand piano for me. I was down the front with Ilam. And we all stood up as they did the Jordanian National Anthem to start the show. And then we went through it. He gave me some fabulous piano solos, like 10, 15 minutes, where he rambled on in Arabic, which I was very humbled by. I didn't understand. He looks at me at the end and he said, right, you're now an honorary Jordanian. And I thought, there can't be a lot of Australian white male Western Jewish pianists to get this particular honour bestowed upon them. But did he, he actually introduced you as an Australian and a Jew? Absolutely. And I was, I was the last person on stage. And, I, and they, I don't know why this is a ludicrous story. I got a call in London. Do you have a gold or a silver jacket? And I thought, no, not really. So I don't really do the Liberace unless I have to, you know. And they said, well, go and get one. So I ended up going to Angels and Shaftesbury Avenue and I hired this outrageous Liberace-esque sequined silver jacket. Um, and, of course, we're in the changing room. I'm the only muggins putting this on. Everybody else is in traditional tuxes and Ilam's not even. So I look like a mirror ball. So every time there's a lighting <laughs> change, it's actually drawn on me. But uh, nonetheless, everyone was very happy with it. And we finished. Ilam is a... Um, 
He's called the Beatle of Baghdad. He is that popular. He is the equivalent of the Beatles, if you like, in the Middle East. And when we finished the show, I asked him the first time, I said, why is it taped music and why are you playing? Why is everyone standing up? And it's the Iraqi national anthem that he closes the show with. And he had to flee because both he and his son, Muhammad, uh, his son got into a lot of trouble when Uday Hussein, Saddam's son, was minister of sport. It's a whole other story, but long and short of it, they had to get out quick smart. They all did the, the run from Baghdad to Amman, where they're based now. Uh, so it was, it was very touching and very moving. I'm waiting to hear back, would you believe, about March the 5th, going for one day to Doha in Qatar to do another gig with them, a royal gig with them. But can I share something which to Please. me is really exciting? All of that is great, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think it pales into insignificance in light of the next program or project that uh, Ilham has invited me to do with him. He said to me while we were in Amman, he said, so Warren, have you heard of a writer philosopher called Rumi? And I said, no, uh, although I could make a joke about things being needing to be more Rumi here mm-hmm. and there, but I had never heard of him, R-U-M-I. Some of your listeners may well be familiar. You may well be familiar. I with am familiar. You're way ahead of the game of me on that one, I'm afraid. But so anyway, so I Google searched Rumi, and apparently he was the most bought and the most read poet philosopher in the USA last year, despite being dead for four or 500 years. So he's a bit the kind of uh, the Shakespeare Cervantes sort of time frame. So he was Persian, which, as you know, is a very niche language. And if you're not really in Iran, you're not speaking Persian. So Ilham says to me, listen, there's only two Persian writers who have made the grade internationally. One is Omar Khayyam, who I have heard of. And, of course, the other is Rumi. So he said what I would like to do is get Rumi's best works translated into Arabic, which, of course, is spoken half the world speaks Arabic these days. And in addition to which, as I said, it is interesting to note that irrespective of being spoken in Arabic or not, the fact is there's a massive appetite in the USA for Rumi. So nonetheless, he wants to do an East-West collaboration with me where the pair of us would compose an album of works taken from the Persian, translated into Arabic of Rumi. And that is coming up in April, which I'm really excited about, creatively doing a really nice hybrid East-West collaboration. And in in fact, deeply honoured and humbled again to be invited to do so. And incorporating it with the English as well would truly make it bridge building absolutely global bridge building absolutely but i've got to i have to ask you mm. when you're when you did this trip and you're up there mm. even on the stage in these places mm. what is your internal voice saying to you as a boy who was born in australia and very Scotland. jewish <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. all of this are there conversations that pop into your mind the, you know, the most bizarre experience I had was when I landed in Beirut the first time. Syria was still an occupying force there. And there were two, uh, there's two ways you can go through. One is, I think, uh, immigration for the locals, and one is for non-residents. I was the only one who got off the plane, so I got through rather quickly, obviously, but there's a massive queue of locals. I mean, at this time when I went, this was about 10 years ago, it was just before a guy called Harawi was blown up, if you remember. It was a yes. big incident. He, they found him and his car on the fourth floor of, of a building in Beirut. So I get there. I am the only one, and there's a guy, a Syrian guy, wearing the Gestapo black trench coat. So the first thing he says to me, he says, huh, so you have been to Israel, yes? <laughs> so I'm laughing very nervously. <laughs> oh, God. Because it's stamped in your passport. Oh, no, it's not. My God, I, would, they, I wouldn't, get, wouldn't get through. I'd be arrested. How did he know? He was just being provocative. He was joking. Oh. But I very nervously laughed with him at the joke. 
thought I'd better not say anything. The other thing, let me tell you, the other thing which is where I had an unusual experience. When you arrive in any normal country where you are issued with a landing card when you're on the flight, they say, what's your name, what's your passport number, where have you come, where are you staying in this country, all the usual stuff. In Saudi Arabia, on the landing card, it has one question, what religion are you? Wow. Well, noting that they still have, as I say, Friday afternoon beheadings, I put not applicable. I thought that might be the smart move. (laughs) (laughs) Especially going into Saudi Arabia. Correct. Um, And then when you're actually there and you are the only Jewish person, Mm -hmm. um, does that have... What does it do to you on your... Is there fear? Is there pride? Is there wonder? What does it do to your soul? Do you know what? I am genuinely grateful for the fact that doing music as I do, and I've said this, and this is my mantra for years and years, music genuinely transcends language, religion, politics, and borders. I am not someone who has a political agenda either on the left, the centre, or the right. I don't want to know about politics because by its very nature, politics is divisive. However you look at it, like the law. So to me... I'm going over there, and music is the passport that I'm taking with me. Therefore, I find it really exciting that I'm given these opportunities, which would otherwise be completely void. They would not exist. The doors would not be open for me. And even my lawyer, who is quite a prominent right-wing Jewish lawyer in London, said it's amazing, Warren. He said, what you're achieving with the connections that are being made artistically, these would be impossible to create politically it's just not going to happen it's it's it really is just something that is so unique and special and what i'm getting from your answers also is that you truly believe and feel that you know who you are and what you are because you're not coming back to me with any oh yes you know i only came from australia you have a complete sense of yourself as a total human in the world mm-hmm. where you don't question you know what you do you know you do it well and you are being constantly given appreciation by the world for what you're doing I, I believe you I am also very very grateful and I mind it every day when I wake up how grateful lucky and fortunate I am to have these opportunities um, in, in any other walk of life I wouldn't have these opportunities but um, f- well Unfortunately, to most people not involved with the arts, these doors are closed. But in order to maximise these opportunities, about 20 years ago, I got very involved in wearing a non-commercial hat, which I call socially inclusive music theatre. Yes, we're going to talk about (coughs) social inclusive theatre in a little while, but Mm. we haven't even been halfway around the world yet because we've just mentioned London and the Arab world, but you're also involved in Kazakhstan and in the the Eastern European bloc. Well, I love this story because um, I've got to be careful how I put this because if I say Eastern Europe, I get my hand slapped, and if I say Asia, I get my hand slapped. But not so long ago, I was working quite extensively with a guy called John Farnden. John Farnden is currently the Royal Literary Fellow of Great Britain, and he is the most published author alive in the UK. He has 800 books published, not articles or essays, but books. And he's currently up for another award. He's up for the Penn Award for translations of works from Uzbekistan. And he goes to New York. And the Penn Award's a bit like the Oscars, but for translation. 
John got very heavily involved with translating works from Eurasia. So the first question we need to establish and ask is, what the hell is Eurasia? It is a very specific region of the world. As uh, my friend Marat, who is, I'm not going to dare pronounce his surname, who is the roving ambassador of Eurasia, tells me it is. Russia, Moldavia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan. It's a very specific area. It has virtually zero profile in the West. Um, I don't know. Some of us might have heard of Baku because there's a, a Grand Prix running there. But on the whole, and I think Borat, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen did a film about Kazakhstan, which was so <laughs> derogatory, <laughs> so ridiculous. Nonetheless, Kazakhstan is a very oil-rich country and is coming out of its dark ages of seclusion and isolation. And there is only one opera that uh, is apparently is huge in Kazakhstan. It's called Abai, A-B-A-I. Well, when I was in London, as one does, I got a phone call. Uh, can I come in the next day to the Kazakh embassy in Palmal, opposite the Canadian embassy? And I said, well, sure, why not? Why not? So in we rock and we meet the Kazakh cultural attaché who says, now I understand you boys are doing, are interested in doing this piece about Abai, but bringing it to the West, which means a reinvention of it. So it'd be new arrangements, it'd be a translation, etc., etc., to go on in London in June this year at what's called the Grindborn Festival at the Arcola, which is in London. So we told them what we were doing, and we left, and two days later we get a call. We said, right, yes, the Kazakh government wants to produce it. They will pay for the whole thing. Can you put a budget together? Whoa. Well, we put a budget together there and then, which was wholly inadequate. Uh, and funnily enough, two days ago we just submitted the full budget to them. Uh, I'm assuming that they said they're approved. Watch this space. Um, I will tell you. How If exciting. it goes on, because we need to start arranging, rebuilding, casting, etc., etc., almost immediately. So our special guest in the studio today is Warren Wills. You're listening to Jay Eyre, 87.8 FM here in Melbourne. This, this is your number one, one choice. choice. Today's hottest hits. Yesterday's favorites. Yesterday's hits. Today's hits. Tomorrow's hits. All hits. All day. And we're back with Warren Wills. So, Warren, um, with this new project as well, um, you are currently also involved in a World Children's Choir project. Now, this is a big story. How much time have you got? Well, we'll have to keep it down because there's still so much more. I wasn't joking when I used the word prolific. Okay, I'll, I'll, be, I'll talk fast and I'll try and be concise. About 20 years ago, I was living in a borough called Haringey, North London. There are 200 languages spoken in Haringey, not only making it the most culturally diverse borough in England, but in Europe. And it's not always successful with the young people. There are a lot of gangs, there's a lot of fights not dissimilar to some of the issues that uh, certainly uh, prevail here in the western suburbs. So I thought, listen, rather than walking around, oh, oh, we're all so clever, we're musicians and composers, we do West End, I thought, I'm going to put another hat on. This is my good causes hat. Why don't we do something for the youth of Haringey? And what is it that I do? Well, I put musicals on. So I thought, you know what, let's do a project whereby we take a bunch of kids, kids deprived of opportunities to normally have you know, access to these things, and why don't we do world premieres collaboratively of new musicals? So in 2000, uh, the council in Haringey loved the idea. We will fund it, we will back it, we'll give you whatever you want. So every summer, which is August in London, I set up a company called Haringey Shed. Why is it called Shed? Because calling it Haringey Social Inclusive Music Theatre sounds a bit awkward <laughs> and cumbersome for young people. Shed sounds a little furrier and friendlier. So we went along with that. 
and we get 70 to 100 people, as in kids, and the ratio of practitioners to participants is one to three because we have a very high degree of our company have special needs. And that's everything from Down syndrome, autism, deafness, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, and so on. So, and in severe cases of cerebral palsy, the ratio might be one on one. So you might have one practitioner to one kid. <coughs> we set up two different um, theater groups. One was called Children's Theater, one was Youth Theater. And every summer, we did the world premiere of a new musical put on collaboratively with the kids. Now, a lot of these kids were not just from, uh, you know, disabled backgrounds, special needs backgrounds, but I'd say one third from what I call severely marginalized backgrounds, kids who come from traumatized backgrounds, young criminal offenders, kids with drug problems, with drink problems, domestic violence issues, and so on. And I would say probably one third of the group is what, for a better term, I'd call mainstream. And it was really important to me that we had mainstream kids in because a lot of these kids on the margins and kids with special needs never ever get the opportunity to work with the mainstream. And kids in the mainstream never get to work with kids out on the margins. And it also, there's another, I, I didn't want this to also look to the general public who, to, who rocked up, that it looks like some kind of curiosity sideshow, a little bit like, oh, it's some kind of circus or freak show. So I thought, no, no, we'll have a third of the kids will be mainstream, a third will come from seriously disadvantaged backgrounds and another third from what we call special needs. It was a massive success and in the end uh, it ran all year. I didn't do it all year but we did outreach to schools and we dealt with thousands of kids. As you probably know because I've told you before but to me the best example of how transformational this work is, a mother came to me um, from the Bangladeshi Muslim community in London and she said I have a son, he's 18 he's in and out of gangs and knife fights and police fights can you take him under your wing and do something with him? And his name is Yamin Chowdhury. And I said, happy to. And he very quickly became an amazing, and I mean amazing, lighting designer, sound technician. He went back to university, did a BA, became a writer, became a drama practitioner, and one year ago got the best producing job in London. He's now the artistic director of the Hackney Empire, which is amazing, and he's 30. So let me tell you, unlike sport, which is win-lose and divisive. This is a win-win situation. The kids and youth get involved. Cutting a long story short, off the back of that, we did it for the Olympics at Hackney Village. I was then invited by La Trobe University to do it here in Shepparton, where we had a lot of indigenous kids. Uh, and again, a lot of the same socioeconomic problems. We then uh, were asked by Les Twentyman to do it in the western suburbs. We then did it in Hong Kong. <coughs> and then two years ago, off the back of that, I was asked, can you do it with older people? We then did it with Choir of Hard Knocks, which is a lot of older homeless people, and with Men Aloud, which was a, a direct backlash, I think, to the Me Too movement. A lot of men with post-traumatic stress disorder, testicular cancer, and all kinds of issues like they say, hey, we've got issues as well. Please don't say that all men are okay. It's only women who've got grievances. And I'll tell you, these men, they were fabulous. A lot of them were... were really felt that they were broken and on the scrap heap of society. We did a musical together. So all this was going on. While all this was going on, a bigger project then emerged combining all these, which was Night of Broken Glass. And that was really to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the events of Kristallnacht in Germany, as seen through a lens of an Aboriginal elder named William Cooper, whom I'm ashamed to say as a kid I'd never heard of. And but this was uh, this whole connection to Night of Broken Glass and everything mm-hmm. came through your brain. Absolutely, I thought and it would be so, great to do something to commemorate yes. Crystal Nacht, but particularly 
through the eyes of something that was so Australian. this whole movement that you've created of inclusive mm. m- inclusiveness for mm. music just blows my mind because there's music and your successful commercial career is one level but then to bring this kind of um, cohesiveness into people who are really on the margins Mm. of of our society is something amazing to behold one of the one of the best aspects for me of night of broken glass we had 400 people in the show and we crossed the generation divide we had kids from three and five working alongside non-tagerians people like uncle boydie who is 90 we had a band which was made up of jews muslims sikhs everything under the sun we had homeless people we had special needs people we had undergraduate students it was absolutely the real definition of what inclusive music theater should be and i went to see it with Mm. a a mind that was a little bit open but very suspicious Mm -hmm. because i saw it advertised and it was like how the hell do you do a musical about something like Kristallnacht? And mm. who are these people that right. are doing it? Because mm. it was put on by the Australian Christian... Australian Catholic University. Uh, Australian Catholic University. And so I went, you know, because I was curious, because mm. I'm very involved mm. in Jewish life. And I was so blown away. My love affair with you began on that night. Mm. I went up and spoke to you afterwards. Mm. I was just so impressed and continue to be because what you're doing is it's not even human. I mean, to these people who you are bringing into the mainstream together with mainstream and what you were saying just before about not wanting to make it a show or Mm. a sympathy thing, but actually inclusion, it just blows my mind. I have total, complete love, respect, honour for you and what what you're doing in this, let alone all the terrific commercial stuff. Oh, no, thank you. I must point out as well, I mean, as fascinating and it is, hugely fascinating, uh, the fact that William Cooper, an elder Indigenous Aboriginal man, made the only recorded private citizens protest to the German government here yes. in Melbourne against the treatment of the Jews. As wonderful and fascinating as that is, to me what is even more wonderful is the fact that 80 years on, I can take 400 people from totally disparate backgrounds who have no knowledge of Kristallnacht and no knowledge of William Cooper, and whether they understand what Judaism is or Islam or disability, all they know is that through a joyful, creative process called music theatre, suddenly we are all working together in an environment that fosters racial tolerance, racial harmony, creativity, self-esteem hiring, confidence, which is, to me, this is fantastic. This is genuinely transformational work. Yes, and you keep the memory of the Holocaust alive in such a beautiful way in this. And I learned things I didn't know about the Barter Shoe Company and how they saved Jews by sending them to India. India. And it it just totally amazing and marvellous. So Mm. thank you from the bottom of my heart. No, great pleasure. It's interesting as well, when I I was doing the project, it's... um, when we talk about a musical per se, there can be a degree of skepticism. Oh, is this going to handle this in, in a very sensitive and a delicate way? Because let's face it, Kristallnacht is, is not a light topic yes. to have a musical about. Nonetheless, in my experience, working in theatre and music theatre all my life, 
when you can no longer, we say when you can no longer speak because the gravity or the heightened emotion of a situation demands it, you sing, you go into music because you touch on much deeper and more heightened emotions than you can in normal speech. So I have no issue whatsoever, however somber or however weighty a subject is, I have no compunction whatsoever to set it to music. And you've you've proved that so mm. true. Mm. But then, and so the stuff you're doing here in Melbourne at the moment too is so different. You put on these wonderful musical evenings with uh, talented uh, people living here in Australia as well, and you're involved in um, in movies and developing movies and stage shows. Well, again, we've got a very exciting. This came of, of nothing. I, when I came back here on. In, at the start of this year in January, which was, what, four weeks ago? Uh, <laughs> I don't know where we are. But um, I thought, right, I, I, it was becoming quite clear I'd only be here for a short time because uh, things are certainly heading back to Europe very soon. <coughs> Nonetheless, I thought, listen, we're in Melbourne. We know so many wonderful people. We've got to do something. So the first thing is you mentioned about the Young World Choir. A number of issues which are very close to my heart, and I suppose one of the big ones is water. I'm not going to be one of these people that, that bang on about there's bushfires and there's climate change. I'm going to use the word water because everyone understands, irrespective of your situation, what it means to have a shortage of water. I don't care what the history of it is. I don't care why it's happened, but it's an issue. It is an issue. And it was made very clear to me, you get water in three ways. You get it from rainfall, you get it from wells, and you get it from the sea. I'm involved with two companies, um, and this is way out of my remit, uh, one is called Botanical Water, which deals with the plantification of water, which is a game changer. And the other is um, Seawater Greenhouse. And it's a guy called Charlie Payton, who is a lighting designer who in, in developed the patent on very lights in the 70s for bands like Genesis. And he asked himself, I wonder if dealing with light, I can use it to actually feed the world. And it's exactly what he's doing. So water is one of my causes. Um, racial harmony, obviously, to, to further elaborate on what we did before with Night of Broken Glass, is another one. And then another issue came up, which we haven't mentioned, which is Macedonia. And in Bitola in Macedonia, there's a football stadium where they propose to do a project which intends to eradicate child poverty by 2025. Well, first of all, that is highly ambitious. But you remember when Live Aid came about, mm -hmm. all the goodwill that went on, very little of the money actually reached the very people it was intended for. And a lot of that is politics. What's very good about this Macedonia thing is that they're not looking to reinvent the wheel here. And it's not an administrative process. They're actually talking about the money going for hot meals, for shoes, for very, very practical ways of spending the money to bring about very real change for these kids. So I find myself, okay, I'm aligned to... Three causes, water, child poverty, and racial harmony, which are very close to my heart. And I find myself with all these different groups around the world who want to participate. One of the great things that happened when I was in Amman, two of the promoters said, Warren, how can, well, it's great what you're doing, you're playing, and how can we get involved? And I, so I told them about this young world choir. The next day, they send me on WhatsApp. They said, I've got three choirs for you. We have an Egyptian, a Lebanese, and a Jordanian children's choir. They want to be part of this whole experience. So, next Thursday, we're doing a soiree here to launch this Young World Choir idea. Uh, it's going to be very private, very intimate, but be the first of many events dotted throughout the world this year, and we will give it as much social, um, social media 
which I'm a huge ignoramus about, I must say, uh, but as much profile as possible. So we're doing that, which is then followed by uh, something completely different at the track, uh, the Marquis in Turak Road on February the 27th with an Israeli singer, Vered Harel. And it is. Uh, I was asked, do I want to do a season of anything that interests me musically? And I said, yeah, call it Masterpieces, and we'll come up with Masterpieces from all over the world in all different generations. So the first one is Masterpieces from is in Israel, in, sorry, in Hebrew, in Ladino, in Yiddish, in Russian, uh, that Verity is doing. Straight after that, on the 28th and the 29th, and the 1st of March, a new theatre has just opened here in Albert Park. It's called CAT, Cracked Actors Theatre. It's a beautiful space. It's a bit like um, Chapel of Chapel, but it's the Albert Park, proper dedicated theatre. Doing a reinvention of two guys and their songs, which I did last year, which is pieces I've done with Frank Housen, one of which in particular interests me because Frank wrote a piece about Elvis. <coughs> and I know it's become the subject of so much parody and caricature now because you've got so many lookalikes and karaoke. But this is actually a script with a genuine heart which really gets under the skin of Elvis. So we're featuring some of that. Uh, I'm then doing two masterclasses uh, also at Cracked Actors Theatre on Music Theatre, which will be a weekend thing. And finally, I'm doing another masterpiece at the track on March the 14th with Sarah McLean, who is fabulous, and Winston Hillier. And we're doing masterpieces from the 50s through to the 80s. And we're looking at masterpieces, things like Moon River, for example, Natural Woman, Aretha Franklin, and so on like that. So um, I will not be idle in my stay in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't sound it. And then on top of that, I know that there's one movie that came out of Night of Broken Class, that uh, the book that you optioned that you're also doing as a movie project. I've got to be very, very careful what I say here. Okay. But, but putting it briefly, one of the things in, in the profession that I work with and the piece reputation was, funnily enough, it was about plagiarism. And I'm going to say something a little bit naughty, so I hope there's not too many lawyers listening. Okay, I'm a nice boy. I'm a nice Jewish boy, so careful. But I'll tell you what happened. A friend of mine, and I can't say who for legal reasons, did a book that came out in America about 20 years ago. did quite well. She then submitted it to a film company. Can't say who, but they picked it up. But they then made a film with... Um, Nicole Kidman and Sean Penn. Did I say that? When it was called The Interpreter. Did you say didn't that? Didn't hear it. No. I didn't hear that either. And it was quite it was quite a big film. Well, of course they did this without permission from the writer. Well, subsequently the writer has a father who has deep pockets because uh, else you would not be able to contest these issues. A plagiarism fight took case, went through mediation, she won the case, got accreditation, but had to sign an NDA. I'm just making this up. I don't know anything about it because there's an NDA out of it, a non-disclosure agreement. So, nonetheless, the reputation was born out of this idea that to get around some of this stuff, uh, and I don't know who wrote it, and I don't know anything about it, but anyway, it was set in the 1930s, but dealt with plagiarism. Now, the reason I say this, and I've got to be very, very careful here, is because until a piece is actually on and ticket sales are on, gotcha. it is a real, and I have learnt the hard way many times over in my life, one has to be very, very careful about plagiarism and copyright issues. Everything else I've told you, for example, like the Abai Opera, it's out of copyright. Uh, reputation, happy to discuss because it's on. Yeah, so as soon as ticket sales are there, that doesn't mean I still won't get sued so, or plagiarised. <laughs> su suffice to say, you're involved in quite a number of, um, of developments of upcoming shows, both live and uh, movies. Absolutely. 
and yeah, I am, and I'm thrilled about it. Some of them I would, I'm happy to discuss. Some, it's probably more prudent that I don't. Absolutely but, not but a problem. What you're talking about, there is a particular project which is very exciting and looks at a very interesting aspect of the Holocaust and concerns itself with a, a dramatic stage version of it. It concerns itself with a film version of it. I would say watch this space and I would hope that six months down the track we can talk freely about the matter that we're at the moment being rather coy about. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I'd like to... There's so much to talk about. We don't have time for the music that we planned for this mm-hmm. show, even though it's all about music, right. because I, I just want to keep talking to you. So um, I want to ask you, as you knew that you had a talent at the age of four... Do you know what? We used to go here in Melbourne... To Footscray. Now, whatever you think about Footscray now, let me tell you, when I was four and I went to Footscray, I dreaded it. It it stunk of chimneys and factories, and as a kid it was one of those, are we there yet? Oh, do we have to go to Footscray? Because my grandfather, <coughs> who stowed away on a boat before the First World War when he was 12 years old from Poland to Birmingham, and he became a tailor in Birmingham, he came over to Australia and he was a huge classical fan. He had a particular record, and I remember it very well to this day. It's Vladimir Polomir to play Chopin. I heard it when at his place, only at his place. And as soon as I got there, he put it on. And every time subsequently that we went, I'd listened to it. I was so excited. I knew every track sideways and back to front. At that point, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a musician and a composer, like Chopin. And we're listening to Warren Wills on J-Air 87.8 FM and just a quick station promo and we're back. We're always looking for people with an interest in radio, either presenting your own show or being on the technical side. Become a volunteer now. Head to our website at j-air.com.au. Follow the Get Involved link and click on Become a Volunteer Now. So were you, and we're back with Warren Wills. Warren, so was your grandfather also a musician? He wasn't a musician. He was actually a very, very keen Chopinist. He just loved classical music. And I remember back in the day, he would listen to 3AR and 3LO, which I'm sure no longer exist. And I remember them very well, and I remember his music very well. I started learning the piano when I was four, and I developed an obsessional, insatiable appetite, so much so I had to literally be physically dragged off the piano stool by my mother to come for dinner and things like that. Gosh. I, by the time I was 10, I'd finished all my grades and my mum thought, what the hell am I going to do with him? So she took me off on a Saturday to the conservatorium and I did an audition at the age of 10 for a guy called John McCackey, who subsequently went on to be the Dean of Music at La Trobe. And he said, right, young man, show us what you can do. And I remember this very clearly. I was 10. I sat down at the piano. I thought, oh, this is all very exciting, being at the university. And he said, can you improvise for me in B-flat major? I said, oh, yeah. So I did my thing. <laughs> and he said, right, I'll take him. I'll take him. And every Saturday, my blessing, my mother would painstakingly take me over to Melbourne Conservatorium, where for two or three hours I'd be doing composition with John McCackey at the, at the conservatorium. I'd finished my grades, I finished my grades in theory, and it became a, like, for me, like, what the hell do I do? Then little delights and jewels were dropped before me. When I was about 12, I discovered Stravinsky. When I was about 13, I discovered McCoy Tyner, jazz, Chick Corea, the whole thing, John Coltrane. Then when I was about 16, I did my what was then called HSC. And I did my correspondence at Taylor's College, and I skipped two years because I was just so into doing the music thing. I went overseas, uh, and then my life changed when I got into music theatre. 
And the first thing that happened was I was in London and a director said, listen, Warren, I want you to be musical director and arranger of Thrupney Opera by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. And my life changed forever at that point. I thought, my goodness, you mean I don't just have to do music with musicians, I can suddenly work with writers, directors, producers, hair designers, actors, dancers. And, and I have been blessed since then. I mean, with dancers, to work with people like Veronica, Veronica Tennant, with writers, to work with people like Snoo Wilson, with Margaret Atwood, Woody Allen. In fact, Margaret Atwood, interestingly enough, who is Flavor of the Month because of the Handmaid's Hat and just won the Booker Prize last year, only living woman to win two Booker Prizes. Uh, we had a piece on just last year in America called The Penelope Ad, which I would love to tell you about because it's a great story. And um, I'd actually, we've just for a minute, because mm. we've, we've, we've only got about four minutes left. Right. Very quickly, Margaret Atwood was approached by Penguin Publishers who said, is there anything in history that you think is wrong that needs addressing? And we will commission it. She said, yes. <coughs> in Homer's epic tale of the tale of Odysseus, which is covered in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Odysseus' son, Telemachus, hangs all 12 of Penelope's maids on one rope at Piraeus Port, and only two lines are afforded to that particular incident out of two books totaling two million words. And Margaret, being a staunch feminist, said, it's not on. I want to write the Penelope ad, which is the story of Odysseus, but through Penelope's eyes. And she did. The Royal Shakespeare Company then commissioned it as a musical. They commissioned me to compose it. We did it in England. We did it in Canada. And it went on again in America last year. Warren, I cannot even describe how I feel about what is still yet to come, and you've done so much already. One lifetime is not enough to complete what you've already started, and and I'm sure we get many more, but you, no wonder you are so tired and you don't sleep because there isn't enough time. Sleep's an optional extra, I figure. I figure there's a long time to sleep in about 30 years' time when we're no longer here. Absolutely. And I know that you are, um, are very close with your family as well. Uh, and just very quickly, uh, your father is ageing and in an aged care facility and you live uh, overseas for six months and your kids... Well, I, I, too, I kind of so. feel a little bit betwixt and between at the moment. I keep telling people, if only Melbourne was in the south of France, it'd be <laughs> ideal. But it's such a schlep to get over here. And unfortunately for me, the generation above me are all pretty close to checking out. And, um, and of course I feel sad about it, but I need to be very pragmatic about it and think, you know what? Grandchildren keep popping up. It is the, it is the turn. What is it, the song from Lion King? Wait. The circle of life. It is. It's revolving doors. I, I've got to be philosophical. How did that feel for you when you held your first grandchild? This is, this is the most extraordinary situation. My mother passed away exactly the same week that I had my first grandchild. My mother passed away here. She passed away here in Melbourne, and my first grandchild was born in London. And I was totally torn, and I made the right decision. I was here with my mother for her final stay, and then I went straight back to uh, to see it. But how does it feel? Do you know what? You get all of the goodness with grandkids. You get all the high points and none of the low points that you do. With, you know, <laughs> it's all good. There's no minuses. There's zero minuses with grandchildren. <laughs> but They're the great. kids make up for everything once they give you those grandkids. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I wish we had another hour. You are just amazing and i just blessed to call you a friend and just look forward to everything else that's coming up in your life and sharing it with you. Lily, it's going to be a fabulous year and one thing 
And I know in Australia we've had some apocalyptic situations going on here, which we know about being very well covered. Being a great optimist and high on life like yourself, I'm actually really looking forward to 2020. And I think so much is going to go on that is going to connect and it's yes. going to include rather than exclude yes. and divide people. So looking forward to 2020 in a big way. Absolutely. And actually what you just said is spot on. You can choose to look at all the devastation or you can choose to look at all the good stuff. And there's always a lot of good stuff around. Well said. As Cheers well. to that. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for being our first guest, 2020 Warren Wills.